Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tenku, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. This episode will be a little different in that there isn't a direct philosophical connection or a specific classical text. There is, however, a lot of cultural and historic nuance that contextualizes the way we interact with our martial art, what I think of as a subset of embodied practices. There are terms and titles used in the martial arts to indicate a variety of things. Power, authority, structure, certification, licenship, among others. One thing I've noticed over the years is that some of these terms have come to mean something very different in English than they do in their original language. If I say the term sensei, or sifu, what do you think of? Among English audiences, particularly martial artists, you probably think of someone who would be considered a master of a martial art. Throw a little Obi-Wan Kenobi, Mr. Miyagi, a little old Chinese man with a long white mustache, and let's not forget some aphorisms from Yoda, and you'd probably have a general idea of a caricature of what the West considers the term sensei or sifu to mean. Speaking of shifu, there are unique characteristics to the Chinese language terms that I think I'll leave for their own episode. For example, the fu in shifu can be written with the character for father, providing parental overtones to the title that might be lost on English speakers not immersed in the Chinese arts. For today, though, let's focus on the Japanese terms. I have more experience with them, and while very much related, follow parallel but different paths. I'd like to specifically thank Gregoris Miliaresis for his edits and advice on this episode. Gregoris is a longtime practitioner of classical Japanese martial arts who lives and works in Japan. He was able to make sure I still had a decent handle on the proper linguistic and cultural nuances we'll be talking about today. I'd also like to point out that I've included a link in the show notes to a public Facebook note containing links to many of the articles he's written for the martial arts magazine Gekken Hiden, uh, their English site budojapan.com. Check the show notes for a link. There's a lot of articles on a wide variety of different areas of the Japanese martial arts, and I highly recommend his work. You can get a much closer and realistic look at the Japanese martial arts through the eyes of a practitioner living and training in Japan. Also, let me take a moment to note the title, Awakening the Shihan. It comes from a joke I was recently having in a discussion group of fellow martial artists. During the conversation, I made the joke that we wouldn't want to awaken the Shihan. The conversation progressed, and another person suggested there should be a bad horror movie made about a group of students finding an abandoned dojo and awakening the ghost of a Shihan. I ended up making a horror movie-style poster, which is the art for this episode. At some point during the conversation, I thought, hmm, this would make a good topic for an episode. And here we are. So, why should anyone even bother using words and titles from another language in their martial art? Let's take a moment to consider a practice that functions very similarly to a martial art. Ballet. If we think about the practice of ballet, they have funny outfits they wear, traditions, and different schools, and many of them use French terminology for many of the moves they perform. No one bats an eye at the use of these cultural and linguistic traditions in ballet. They are however, engaged in the same technical practice that the martial arts is, that is, 
conforming and shaping the body to the nature, strength, flexibility, and body knowledge for the performance of specific techniques and principles. It is another practice of embodied knowledge, like a martial art. The practice itself began during the Italian Renaissance during the 15th century. Interestingly, this is around a similar time period that the oldest Japanese styles can roughly trace their lineage back to. And then it was further developed in France and Russia in later centuries. Like Latin and Greek before it, French was considered for quite some time the international lingua franca, that is, a bridge language or a common tongue meant to facilitate communication between cultures. Much as English has come to be a bridge language across the world today, and I'm sure some other language will eventually replace uh, English. For a time, at least, the best ballet teachers and their students trained, studied, and taught in French. This practice spread across the world, and so French language and terms came to be a norm for those that trained in the embodied practice of ballet. I'm guessing there are parts of the world where the same is true for Russian, but I've yet to come across a a ballet school that teaches using Russian terms, though I suspect they exist. The point is, though, is to illustrate how the exact same thing has happened with the martial arts. This is true for both the Asian and the historical European arts. There are origin cultures where certain embodied practices arose, and for a time the best teachers, and in some cases only teachers, were people whose primary language was the one spoken in their country of origin. It makes sense for them to teach using the terms they themselves learned in. It provides a connection for the practitioner to the practice itself. Language is a tool that connects us to others, and in that sense, then, the cultural trappings of an art can be a kind of subculture that allows for shared understanding, cultural narrative, and yes, even philosophy. On one end of the martial arts spectrum, particularly the purely sportive sorts, this is admittedly unnecessary. Yet, it persists. Muay Thai kickboxing and judo can both be practices that are trained in a purely physical way divorced from their cultural backgrounds. Yet, it is the flavor to the dish, the spice that makes it interesting and unique, that the cultural and historical and linguistic ties bring to each art. Ballet can be taught entirely in English. There is absolutely no need to train or perform ballet with any French or Russian language, or even wearing one of the standard outfits that a dancer wears. Yet, is something of the flavor lost? Maybe. Maybe not. These traditions persist, though, and they are what makes many practices unique from other variations of embodied practices, even in the same genres. Going back to philosophy, tangentially, there is an ethical situation in that I've seen titles used to create structures of power to influence, control, and exploit within martial arts organizations. A particular favorite of mine is in the film Napoleon Dynamite, where a certain martial arts school is visited and the Rex Kwando instructor can be remembered for arrogantly shouting, Bow to your sensei! This character of Sensei Rex, or someone like him, is probably what people who look down on the use of the title Sensei imagine. If all Sensei were like Rex, they would be right. The problem is that the title and the use of it is not an indicator of either the validity of the person or the teaching, just as a med student who barely scrapes by and the med student at the top of their class are both accorded the title doctor. Naturally, in some circles within the martial arts, there is some pushback against certain titles like sensei. In my opinion, they are both right and wrong. Right to push back against the misuse of those titles as they have come to be abused, 
but wrong that just because someone uses a title like sensei, that means they're automatically in the same category as other people who have abused the term. I've had instructors who were kind, thoughtful, wise, and helpful. I use the term sensei with them. However, then there are people who wear the term like a mantle of authority, like a symbol of their superiority. I've also found this in academic circles with people who insist on being called doctor. Yes, they've earned their PhD, and yes, within their area of study, it would make sense to refer to someone as doctor so-and-so. But to insist on being called doctor by people outside your field borders on arrogance. Yet people do it. Their education and their career are so intertwined with the identity that it is troubling to them for it to be separated. Be it sensei or doctor, some people like the feeling of authority and thus power over others. And as we all know, eventually that ends in abuse. My view on this is that if you're going to be using terms from another language, you should make the effort to use them and pronounce them correctly. If you're not going to bother with using them correctly, you may as well just use whatever terms make sense in your own language. When I taught traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu, I achieved an instructor certification in that system that allowed me to be called sensei by my students. However, I made a point of encouraging them to just call me by my name. If they wanted to learn some conversational Japanese, they would be welcome to call me sensei in that language. For now, let's save the rest of the discussion of sensei for later. We should dive deeper into this issue of using language correctly. Um, I should note or at least mention, that unless I know otherwise, all definitions today have been adapted or taken directly from Dr. David Hall's Encyclopedia of Japanese Martial Arts. Fundamentally, the problem here is that we have a set of words that arose and came to use in a language other than English. For today, this is Japanese. I should note here that because Japanese is such a contextual language, it is hard to give hard and fast rules for how each term should be used. One's position in a hierarchy is built into the very structure of the Japanese language, something that is not well defined in English. However, as an example, even in English, we choose to speak with varying levels of politeness differently depending on context. If you were to walk into an expensive restaurant with a dress code, how would you expect the staff to speak to you? Casually and with a heavy use of slang? or with proper, polite, and possibly even deferential language? How does someone in the military refer to a superior officer? Sir and ma'am, anyone? Imagine this kind of linguistic structure, but amplified by several orders of magnitude. This is what we're dealing with in Japanese. Your relationship to the person you are speaking with is codified into the language. This can create some amusing mistakes when one is learning to speak Japanese. Many years ago, I was speaking to the father of the family I was staying with and used some vocabulary I picked up from watching a television show. I didn't realize it, but I was effectively using gangster or Yakuza language with him. He had a good laugh, corrected me, and turned it into a funny lesson, but rest assured I never made the same mistake again. This context and terminology for how you refer to a person in Japanese is, needless to say, very important. For a crude example, consider that one can effectively swear at a person simply by using a personal pronoun that would be directly translated as you. When I say in English, you made a mistake, you might hear the anger in my voice. Contextually, you know I'm serious. If I say in Japanese, omai wa dare da, I might, I might translate that as who the hell do you think you are? Or if I just shout omaya at a person in anger, it could be translated as a word that would give this podcast an explicit rating. 
However, in its most basic linguistic sense, omae is just a personal pronoun that means you, but with a sense of intimacy. I might refer to my wife lovingly as omae as an example. Context is everything. Another thing about Japanese is that there is a distinction between titles and honorifics. You've probably heard of san, Daniel-san, wax on, wax off. Though we don't generally use it, most English speakers at this point know that if we stick san as a suffix to someone's name, it's kind of like our Mr. or Mrs. There are other honorifics in Japanese, depending on where someone is on the hierarchy. Chan and kun are used for children and sometimes pets. Kun is generally for boys and chan for girls, but not always. On the other end of the spectrum is sama and dono. Dono is pretty dated and might mean lord in a feudal sense. Sama is used for people, spirits, or gods deserving of great respect. I've also seen it used in a sarcastic fashion. Titles, on the other hand, are a little different. This could be likened in English to what we call the C-suite terms like CEO, CFO, CIO, and so on. These define a person's position and responsibilities. But it'd be pretty weird for a person to expect to be referred to as CEO Linda or CIO Peter. This would be how a title could be misused in English, and is probably one of the most common mistakes I see among English speakers who practice a martial art originating from Japan. And so we come to the word sensei. There is no direct translation in English that I think does this term justice. The most generic might be teacher, though when we have to, then we have to grapple with the fact that sensei is also used for doctors, lawyers, and artists. Does it mean master? No. Calling someone sensei when one practices a Japanese art is just normal. There's no sense of master, necessarily. In a normal everyday school classroom in Japan, the students refer to their teacher as sensei. Obviously, then, translating, translating it as coach doesn't work quite right, which can be confusing for some of my compatriots in Brazilian jiu-jitsu who seem to only interact with their art as if it were another sport, like tennis or baseball. In the Portuguese, they translated sensei to the word professor, which, when translated to English, is just teacher. So there we have two layers of linguistic travel going on. So is it weird to refer to someone as professor in English? That term also comes with extra baggage that wasn't meant originally. Does your BJJ instructor have a PhD in something? Nobody thinks that, but I've seen BJJ practitioners scoff at calling someone a sensei because of their misunderstanding that the term means something like master, all while making the very same linguistic faux pas with the term professor. Literally translated, we might say that sensei means one who came before. It can be used both as a pronoun, a title, and an honorific. Thus it is fine to say, sensei, what are we covering in class today? Or, Yamada sensei, may I see that one more time? Regardless of a person's rank or title, in Japanese at least, the person instructing class is referred to as sensei. The way we use the word sensei is also similar to how we use a couple of other words in Japanese. Senpai is another term you'll hear and is indicative of what might be called the senpai-kohai relationship. A senpai is someone who started before you, and a kohai is someone who started later. This can often be linked with age, particularly in educational school settings, but it isn't strictly age-related. In a dojo, anyone regardless of age who started before you is your senpai, and anyone who starts after you is your kohai. This is another set of terms and accompanying hierarchy that have been horribly abused in some martial arts, particularly in judo. 
However, it is a set of terms that are also used in a normal classroom. The nuance here, though, is that while someone might say Takahashi-senpai in the third person, or refer to them directly as senpai, kohai isn't really used as a pronoun or honorific. You might refer to someone in the third person as your kohai, but never directly. More likely, you'd just use a standard honorific like san, kun, or chan, depending on how close you were to the person. As you'll see in a moment, this is basically the same as how one uses a term like shihan. Which brings us to titles. These are often confused with honorifics and is one of the most common mistakes I hear English speakers make when using the Japanese language in their martial practice. These titles are referred to in Japanese as shogo, it might be translated as title, name, or degree, and were developed by a variety of different martial arts organizations. In particular, the Dai Nippon Budokukai, an organization that originally governed the practice of all martial arts prior and during World War II in Japan. Due to its strong relationship with the Japanese military, and the fact that the Japanese martial arts were heavily utilized in the education and propaganda engines of Imperial Japan, the organization was dissolved, and the Japanese martial arts were banned for a time after the war. I always found it interesting that karate was not one of the arts banned, like kendo, aikido, and judo, due to its Okinawan origin. While people tend to think of karate as being Japanese today, Okinawa, Okinawa was its own nation with its own culture and language for a long time. So it wasn't seen as Japanese by either the Imperial Japanese War Machine or the Americans. This might explain why so many American soldiers were able to return to the U.S. after the war with karate training. Today, <clears throat> there is a new Dai Nippon Budokukai that exists today, uh, unrelated to the wartime organization. However, many of the choices of the original DNPK still permeate the practice of the Japanese martial arts. The Dani ranking system and some of these titles can all be linked to the standardization efforts of the original DNPK. The titles themselves are generally awarded around certain ranks, but the title has no direct correspondence to a Don rank. Uh, just side note here, when I say Don rank, I mean like Shodan, Nidan, Sandan. Uh, these are like first degree, second degree, third degree. They also were originally awarded very sparingly. After the war, they were first adopted by Kendo and eventually other modern Budo. Though the standards were relaxed... Uh, it was still not easy to earn these titles in legitimate Budo circles. For example, in Kendo, the title of Hanshi is only awarded to someone who has been a Kyoshi for over 10 years, is over the age of 55, and has earned an 8th Dan. So, what are some of these titles? A note, some arts use these titles differently than others. What I'm going to describe here are general patterns, not hard and fast rules. It's okay if people do things a little different, the key is to understand what they are so you can better recognize when they are being used in an abnormal fashion. Also, just a reminder, all these definitions are adapted from Dr. Hall's Encyclopedia of Japanese Martial Arts. The first is Shihan, which is a senior instructor of swordsmanship or a senior combative, combative arts instructor. Then there's Shihan Dai. A, this would be a proxy instructor an assistant master swordsmanship instructor, an assistant chief swordsmanship instructor. Renshi, which can be written with one of two characters for the shi or shi, uh, the first being a character meaning basically warrior, same, and the second one basically meaning teacher. 
This could be a, a junior swordsmanship teacher and assistant trainer in modern martial arts and ways systems. That'd be Budo. Arenshi is about equivalent to a fifth or sixth Don ranked person. Then we have Kyoshi. This would be a master teacher of swordsmanship with less seniority than a Hanshi. Uh, in modern systems, Kyoshi are generally recognized at around the seventh or eighth Don level. And by the way, uh, you might hear me accidentally say like Renshur. Uh, that's, that's actually Renshi in Japanese. In Chinese, the character is Shur, as in Lao Shur, which just literally means teacher. Um, so my apologies if I uh, mess it up there, but I'll stay focused. So then we have Hanshi, a master teacher of swordsmanship. Uh, in modern systems, the title of Hanshi is usually accorded or awarded to practitioners who have attained the level of 8th or ninth Don in the ranking system. However, there is no direct relationship between, for example, 8th Don and the title of Hanshi. An 8th Don practitioner might be titled a Kyoshi. The titles of Hanshi and Renshi and Kyoshi may be awarded by an organization outside the recipient's ranking organization. Uh, so then we have Shidoin, that's an instructor or supervisor. This is a title awarded in some martial arts, including some classical and modern martial arts systems, to confer teaching responsibility. We have Kancho. This is a training hall leader. As a title, Kancho indicates the head of a dojo, who may or may not be the head instructor. This title means essentially the same thing as Dojo Cho. Which brings us to Dojo Cho. This is the head of a dojo, who may or may not be a head instructor. Such a person may hold the title of Kancho as well. Then we have Kaicho. This is a group leader. Uh, this is a fairly modern title and indicates the leader of a martial arts training group, a Kai, who may or may not, again, be the head instructor. Then we have Soke. This is a much misunderstood term in the West, and the use of this term has changed over the centuries in Japan. I really should devote an entire episode to just this term at some point. It actually originates as a term to refer to the family head of an artistic tradition like tea ceremony, or a commercial guild that held exclusive rights to the practice of techniques, training, and licensure in a particular art or business. According to William Bodiford, in an article on this topic, he notes that the term wasn't used for a martial art until the early 20th century. Also, it's important to know that a, a k, or a k, as in so k, um, had a very specific meaning in Japan as a kind of family register maintained by the government. Non-Japanese can't have a a so the idea of a non-Japanese soke is alien to the Japanese system. I actually have personal experience in this area when the topic of marriage came up with the Japanese family of a girl I was dating. They spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how it would work eventually, coming to the conclusion that I would need to essentially be adopted into the family to be registered under their, their ke, they were an old merchant family from northern Japan who actually have a mountain named after them and maintain several family businesses that date back to the Tokugawa period. So the idea of the official government register, the, the ke, and how I was going to fit into it was actually pretty important to them. The thing to take away from the term soke, though, is that it is far more complex than some twisted version of Grandmaster. It is a technical legal term for what might be considered a CEO of a guild that has a monopoly over something specific, usually some kind of art. In many cases, the family soke is not the head instructor of an art, and may have little to no actual skill in the family art. Sometimes they do, 
take it on a family-by-family basis. A non-Japanese person with the title Soke makes very little sense in Japanese and is next to impossible to exist. There is one gaijin, that's a non-Japanese I'm aware of, who effectively exists and functions in that role in a legitimate fashion. And even in his case, it came with significant political and at times what would be viewed in the West as racist controversy. The fact of the matter, though, is that a Ryu's business is its own. And if you hear of a non-Japanese using the title Soke, it is highly likely that person is someone who has chosen to take that title for themselves without really understanding all the historical and cultural meaning behind it. So, lots of different fancy titles, so how do we use them? The simplest way to think of it, that I can come up with, is that titles can be used to refer to someone in the third person, but not in the first person. It would be very weird to say in Japanese, Shihan, what are we doing in class today? Or, Renshi, may I see that one more time? It would, however, be normal to say, I got to visit with Kyoji Shihan and talk with him about his style. As one friend who lives and trains in Japan in a classical Japanese martial art explained to me, if I were to visit him, he would introduce me like this. Matthew, this is my teacher, Yamada Shihan. Sensei, this is my friend from America, Matthew-san. When speaking to me, because he is introducing me to his teacher, who is a Shihan in his art, he would describe him as Yamada Shihan to me. When speaking to his teacher, the Shihan, he would refer to him as Sensei. What can be confusing here is that he did not use Shihan as an honorific like San, but as a title. In written English, you'll see this indicated by a hyphen between the name and the word. There will, be a just, uh, there will just be a space between the name and the title. Thus, if we say Daniel-san, there is a hyphen between Daniel and San. But if I write Daniel-Shihan, there is a space, and only a space, between Daniel and Shihan. A subtle difference, but a more linguistically accurate one. All this to say that in general English, speakers make it way more complicated than it needs to be. It's pretty simple in Japanese. The person instructing the class, you call sensei. They may have other titles, but those only get used when talking about your sensei in the third person to others. Also, you might ask your senpai for help. Everyone else is just their name with an appropriate honorific based on how close you are to them. It really doesn't need to get more complicated than that. If it does get more complicated, then it's time to take some proper Japanese language classes. There are other areas where this applies not to linguistics but to cultural practice. Let's step away from titles and honorifics for a moment and look at another symbol that has been misused or misinterpreted at times. As an example, let's briefly consider the black belt. In the West, the black belt is often seen as a sign of mastery of an art. This is not how it originated in Japan. A shodan, that is a first-degree black belt, was an indicator that you'd learned enough of the fundamentals to have a basic conversation about your art. It was not in any way an indicator of mastery. Yet the West saw it as that, and this misconception actually, well, eventually became truth. Consider, for example, that in my own art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a black belt actually is an indicator of mastery. You can pretty much assume that if you meet a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, that they have spent 15 to 20 years mastering the art. Some people can do it in 10, but they're prodigies. A big difference from the black belts awarded in other arts for a few years of practice. I've heard this disparaged among the BJJ community, and yet when we look at a black belt, 
Through the lens of history, one realizes that it is the BJJ community that has made the mistake. They embody in their own art a misunderstanding of the Japanese arts that they are descended from. Yes, a black belt in BJJ is a symbol of a deep commitment and skill in that particular art. And that is fine. That's what has come to mean in our art, and I'm fine with that. But that is not how black belts work in many of the Japanese martial arts, where it may only signify basic competency. I always cringe when I hear a BJJ person scoff at a room full of black belts at a school in another art. They're comparing miles to kilometers and complaining that they don't match up. So why all this talk of honorifics and titles? As I mentioned at the very beginning, I've seen these titles and terms misused in a way to enforce a power structure within martial arts that is unhealthy. Sometimes it's just a mistake and innocuous, but in the worst case, these structures can be used to abuse students. This is not a problem exclusive to the martial arts, but it is one of, excuse me, one of the red flags I look for when evaluating the health of an organization. It can be one of the indicators that you look for when trying to decide whether you want to practice a particular art or in a particular school. While it's not the only element to consider, at least in the Japanese martial arts, it's worth asking yourself why you're using particular terms and whether you are using them in a way that is natural to the Japanese language. Are they used in a way to enforce authority and hierarchy? There are plenty of examples of these abuses to be found in Japan. But as with any topic, it doesn't have to define the system as a whole. There are benefits to power structures, and when used correctly, to hierarchy as well. Particularly in the combative arts, there is distinct value to be found from training under the authority of a specialist. Which would be better? You in a room with many other students, one where the teacher, at best, gets a few moments with you and may or may not know your name? Or you, one-on-one -on -one with an instructor who is teaching you a customized curriculum specifically designed for your particular body type, needs, and goals. One where you are an apprentice of an individual who is as invested in your training as you are yourself. There are risks that come with this structure, but also there is the possibility for a far more advanced and higher quality level of training. As I mentioned earlier, it is these cultural and historical trappings that can give a practice its flavor. That makes it distinct from a bland, purely technical practice. Noodles are a delicious dish because they are made in a distinct cultural style. While a plain bowl of noodles can keep you from starving, it is the bowl of spaghetti, shoyu ramen, or curry noodles that we crave for its flavor. Appreciate the cultural, linguistic, and historical nuance of your practice. Though, make the effort to use it in a way that is accurate for your arts culture of origin. Otherwise, you're better off not using it at all. And that's all for today. Please help the podcast out by sharing and telling people about it. The best way you can help us is just by letting people know that it's out there and what it's got you thinking about. Thank you for listening and talk to you again soon.